Good morning, everyone. Thanks for surviving to the last session of reInvent 2019. I'm very happy to see a, a decent-sized room here. Uh, my name's Grant McAllister. I'm a senior principal engineer with uh, Amazon Web Services. I work on the RDS team, uh, and I specialize uh, these days mostly on the Postgres engines. So today, we're going to do a deep dive on Aurora Postgres. And by that, I mean what we're going to do is try to explain to you the changes we've made and why they're important to you, why you care that we made changes and made our own engine. So one of the first things I like to talk about is that Aurora is part of RDS. Sometimes it's confusing because of the branding, but Aurora is just another engine, just happens to be our own, that's part of RDS. So all the manageability that you are probably aware of on RDS, all these great things, are things that are exactly the same with Aurora. It just happens to be our engine, and we've made some changes. So given that, we have two engines in our universe for RDS, for Postgres. The first being our RDS Postgres Community Edition that runs on EBS. And then we have our Aurora uh, engine that runs on Aurora Storage. And that's one of the primary differences, and we'll dive into that. So what are the things that are the same? Well, we have the same versions. We support 9, 6, 10, and 11. Many people hadn't heard that we have released 11 for uh, Aurora Postgres. We have the same extensions. We have the same you know, capabilities around backup and recovery point-in-time recovery, security, all these things. I'm not going to list them all. But you can get a lot of the same things out of either one of these engines. Now, we did have a bunch of stuff that was missing for quite a while on Aurora. Uh, the three major things we were missing was cross-region replication, which in our terms for Aurora is called Global Database, and it's going to be shipping very shortly. Outbound logical replication, I'll talk about that in detail, and the ability to have smaller instances like T3. We now support the T3 medium. And as I said before, one of the cool things is we just released 11, so we're caught back up from a, a version perspective. But the great thing, of course, is the community is always doing their work, and they've released a preview of 12. So you can actually get that in RDS today, and of course, we're actively working on that for Aurora. So let's dive into the architecture and really get in and talk about what makes up Aurora. So here I'm pitching, uh, showing a region with three availability zones, right? And then you have Aurora storage, and that's the thing in blue and it spans across all three of them. And then you see those little gray boxes. Those are our storage nodes. Now, I'm showing like six in each region, but for most regions, there's probably thousands or you know, many thousands in each region. So when you ask for an Aurora cluster database, what you get is you get this read-write node, which is an EC2 instance, and you get this storage provision for you. So what's behind the scenes? Well, behind the scenes, we get these 10 gig chunks, and there's, you typically start with 16, but there's also six copies, as you can see. And so that's the different colors I'm showing on the screen. So when you, know, you can have, for high availability, of course, you can put your applications in multiple availability zones. Now, when you go do a write, we write log records. That's one of the fundamental differences. We'll, we'll talk about that more. And when you do that, you basically write to these six locations, right? So that makes it durable. Now, we do a four of six quorum. That means four of these have to happen before we can say it's durable. We'll talk about why we made that decision in a bit. Now, when we read, though, we read standard Postgres blocks. There's nothing weird about this. We're not doing anything. If you looked at the block with an editor, you'd be like, that looks like Postgres. And the other thing that is important is we don't have to do quorum reads. So there is no need to go read all six copies. We know which one is up to date, and we can read from the ones that have all the data. So this means you don't have an extra hop. So, 
So let's say one of those chunks is missing a write because we only need four or six quorum. Well, what happens? Well, we have all this background work that does peer-to-peer -peer gossip, and it'll actually repair from one of the other segments that has the missing data. So this all happens on a block-by-block, segment-by-segment basis, so highly parallel, right? And it doesn't matter if you lose just that block or a whole storage unit, right? We will just copy that 10-gig segment from another one and do the repair. And this is all under the covers. You never see this. You never see a performance blip. It's very nice. So the other thing that you can do is you can have read-only nodes. And these are a little different. We call them read replicas. I like to call them read-only nodes because that makes more sense to me. And the reason why I call them read-only nodes is because they don't have their own storage. They just attach to this big storage that we have behind the scenes. So whether you have one in an availability zone or you have them in multiple availability zones, and you can have many of them, right? So you can have actually up to 15 read-only nodes and one read-write node. Now, the cool thing about this is if you have a failure and you have that read-write node with that failure, whether it's a failure from an AZ perspective or just that individual EC2 instance, we're going to promote that RO node that you were running, the read-only node, into a read-write node, and you're back writing again. And this typically takes about 30 seconds, including the DNS propagation. So it's very nice. And even if you don't have a read-write node, we'll just repair, and you can spin up another one because you have this clustered storage model. The other major difference we did was we made some changes around how we do the storage. So one of the first things we did was think about concurrency. So what I'm showing on the left is Postgres and how it writes. So you start off with a bunch of queued work in the, in the blue boxes there. And this is work like you're just ready to commit. So you hit commit on a whole bunch of sessions. They're ready to go. They flow down into the log buffer. Now the log buffer has to now flush to disk. Now if more work shows up, it can't actually enter the log buffer because there's a latch that has to protect it. So we wait for the log buffer to go down to storage, get acknowledged, and then we're good. And now the next set of queued work can flow down to the log buffer, right? So this works great, but it causes a little bit of delay. On Aurora, we do something completely different. As these pieces of queued work come in, they just start flowing down to the storage. They don't need to be ordered how they flow down. We know the order they arrived in. So what we do is we have this durability tracking where we keep track of all those transactions and whether we've hit our four of six quorum. So what I'm showing right now is none of them are durable. And then you see a few of the writes coming back. So now we have like you know two writes back on some of these. So we're still not durable. Okay, now we get four. Now you'll notice that A has four, right? So it's durable. But wait. Isn't C also at four? Why is it not durable? Well, because this is a relational database. It needs to be ordered. B happened before C, so therefore, until B gets to four, we don't mark C because you, know, you don't want things out of place. So this works really well, and it allows a lot of concurrency. Now, again, you notice even E isn't marked because we need D in order. So the other thing we do is we write a lot less. Again, Postgres on the left. I'm showing a block in memory with a tuple there. When you go and update that tuple, you get another tuple, and you mark the old one as basically pending delete, right? This causes those to flow into the wall stream. Now, you'll notice this thing called a full block that gets ejected into the wall stream, or a full page write sometimes, we, we say, in Postgres. Now, the reason for this, I'll get into in a second, but it essentially happens every time you change a block after a checkpoint. So the first time you touch a block, this is what happens. So if you touch the block again, like you do an insert here with this new tuple, you don't actually, it just goes into the wall stream. There's no changes, right? So 
you know, it only does it certain conditions. So we have to do a checkpoint at some point. We gotta get that data block out to the storage, right? Make it durable as well. And we have to archive our wall, and of course we have to back up our wall to S3. So this is all the stuff we do on RDS. So when you do that checkpoint, behind the scenes, you've got an 8K block in Postgres, but you have 4K chunks on your OS. So you're actually gonna have two 4K writes. Well, if the machine crashes as that last 4K write is going down to disk, it'd be lost. We call this like a split block, and it's really bad because it would be hidden corruption. You really wouldn't want this, right? So Postgres has this really nice feature that it puts these full blocks in, so after the crash, it would do crash recovery. It's gonna find that full block and replace it so you don't have corruption. So this works really well, but you can see there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of work. On the Aurora side, it's a bit different. We do that same update, right? We have that same first tuple. We do the update. Those two tuples or log records get ejected into our log stream and into storage, and that's it. And if we do a third one, that's it. So very little work. And at some point, we continuously back up those log changes in the blocks to S3 as well. So the big difference here is there's no checkpointing, there's no full page writes. This results in a lot less work that you have to do. So let's dive into the storage layer. So this zooming down into basically one of those gray blocks, right? So you have your read-write node, it's gonna do a transaction, we'll call it A again. What it does is it flows down to what we call the incoming queue. This is just in memory. So of course, we can't say it's acknowledged yet because it's not durable. So it moves into what we call the hot log, the hot log is a durable storage, so at that point we can act back to the read-write node. Now remember, we're not saying this is committed, we're just saying one of the six copies has been durably stored, right? So that's acknowledged there. So then let's say we see the C block come in, or the C change come in, and it goes to the incoming queue, and then it moves down to the hot log, just like the A1. But wait a minute, didn't we have a B transaction? What happened to it? Well, it might have got lost in the network, might have got dropped, might, the storage node might not have gotten it, right? But that's again where the peer-to-peer -peer gossip comes in. So this is communicating with all the other storage nodes and it says, hey, I have a copy of B, I'll just give you my copy of B. Now we have this nice ordered set of changes in the way they occurred on the read-write node and we can actually move those to what we call our update queue. And our update queue is where we start merging changes into data blocks. So we coalesce those changes into a data block change. Now this can be done on the fly, or it can be done in the background depending on the workload. So, and then, of course, once we have these things, we can back up both the log changes and the data blocks to S3, and this is a continuous process. So of course, when the read-write wants a read, guess what, it gets a block back, it's that coalesce block back from the storage node. So this all works really well. So let's dive into backups a little more. So, a lot of people that use Postgres have come from other databases and done conventional backups. But I wanted to walk through this and kind of show some of the differences. So when you think about conventional backups, you had to think about things like, I'm gonna do a full on Sunday, and so I'm showing that yellow to mean like, hey, we got all the database. On Monday, you get the logs between Sunday night and Monday nights backup, you got a backup. Monday, you've got a incremental backup possibly if your system allowed that. Again, on logs, Tuesday, you got more incremental, another set of logs. And on Wednesday, you got to, you probably gotta do a cumulative backup because otherwise you've got a lot of things to restore. So the cumulative is the difference from the full. So you do that. It's a little different, right? And the logs again. And then Thursday, you can go back to doing a differential incremental. Friday, another differential incremental. And then Saturday night, you probably wanna do another cumulative incremental. 
So this was the kind of stuff you had to think about to try to balance how much work you were doing for backups. Now, when you go to do restore, let's say on Monday morning, this is shortly after the full, this is a really nice one, right? Because you do the full, and you do those few logs that you've done, and you're good to restore, right? This works pretty fast. But let's take Wednesday afternoon. This means you gotta do the Tuesday backups, but it's more than that. You've gotta do the full, two differentials, plus a whole bunch of logs. So this maybe gets you up to about 150, maybe 2x the kind of work you had to do before. But let's go further into the week. What happens if you need to do Saturday afternoon? Well, then you have the full, you have the middle of the week cumulative incremental, and you have two you know, differential incrementals plus the logs, right? So this is a lot of complexity and made a lot of variability in your restore time. So let's talk about optimal versus non-optimal when we think about these things like incrementals. The optimal case is the very first write you do to your database, let's say it goes to block one, it makes that block dirty, so you've gotta back it up, right, next night. Well, the optimal case would be that all of the rest of your backups, or all the rest of your writes, go to that same block. And when they're on that block, that means you've only dirtied one block. It's fine, not a lot of work, right? Now, the non-optimal case is the exact opposite. This is where every single write goes to a different block. And this is actually really hard to tell what's going on in your database, whether you're you know, at the optimal case, the non-optimal case, or somewhere in between. But in either way, if you have the non-optimal case versus the optimal, you're talking about 10 times more work being done. So let's take that, and now let's go look at the conventional backup again for a non-optimal case. So we still have our full on Sunday, and we still have our logs, right? But Monday, when we do our differential incremental, what we see is that it's almost the entirety of the database because we touched all the blocks. So we have to back them all up. Same thing on Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, when we do our cumulative backup, we're probably talking about 90% of the database has to get backed up. You know, and this kind of occurs, and then Saturday, by the time you get to Saturday, it's probably 99% of the database has changed, right? So let's go back to our restore example of Saturday afternoon. Now we do the same full, the same cumulative incremental, and the two differentials. But they're almost full copies of the database, right? So at this point, you're doing three to four times the amount of work for the restore. So if you told your boss it's gonna take four hours to restore, and now it's gonna take 12 or 16, they're not gonna be happy, right? So this was the kind of stuff that you had to really think about. So when we started RDS, we wanted to do something different. Now the great thing was we had this lovely service called EBS that we could use, and this kind of helped us change how backups worked. So here I'm predict showing in the uh, yellow blocks our EBS storage. And hopefully you can see that. There's 16 blocks there. So we're starting off, we're doing a full backup the first time we have our database, right? This is the very first time you have your RDS database. And then you generate some logs and we back those up in the exact same way. Come Tuesday or Monday, we do a backup, but you'll notice that only two blocks have changed on that. So we only have to back up those two blocks. And then on you know, Tuesday, it's four blocks. On Wednesday, it's another four blocks. And same you know, Thursday. But Friday was brutal. Someone came in to do a backfill on 13 of the 16 blocks had to get, got changed. So the snapshot is probably taking a little longer, but the great thing about EBS is that's all happening in the background, so you probably don't actually care that much. And then Saturday, we have, again, four blocks change. So now let's go look at that Wednesday afternoon restore. What we have to do is get those 16 blocks back. But we don't actually have to do any merging of blocks. We just ask EBS for them, and they go get the latest blocks from the right backups, right? So they take four from Tuesday, a couple from Monday, and the rest from Sunday night. And then we have to do the log restore, right? 
And even if we have to do a restore for Saturday afternoon, after that really bad change day on Friday, it's the same thing, right? We get most of the changes from Friday, and we get a couple from Wednesday and one from Sunday. So what this means is with RDS backups, we now had where the restore of the storage was a sort of a fixed time component, regardless of how much data you changed. But the logs were not, right? So if you got lucky and you got to restore right after your backup, you have a few logs. If it's 23 hours and 59 minutes since you did your last backup, you've got to restore all those logs, right? So we thought, we can do better with Aurora. So we made some more changes. So the first thing to realize about Aurora backups is we get rid of the days. There are no days, it's continuous. There is, even though we have what we call system backups in Aurora, they're just really records. They're not, you know, they're not physical things. So I'm showing 16 blocks here. And the cool thing about Aurora is that those 16 blocks could possibly live on 16 different storage nodes, and they can all be acted on in parallel. So these 16 blocks get backed up to S3, and that's what I'm showing that they're in S3. So let's say we go do a bit of work, and we generate these log records I'm showing in blue, right, over some time. Well, at some point, we're going to come along, and we're going to coalesce those block records, those log records, into a block. And we're going to store that in S3. So we'll do this continually throughout the week, right? So in the end of the week, you end up with a picture like this, where you have a bunch of full blocks and some amount of log records stored in S3. So when you ask to do a restore, it's very much like the EBS restore in that all we do is pull the blocks from the latest copy. But you'll notice that the big difference here is that this is all parallel. So it actually ends up looking like this. It all happens at the same time, right? Now, in this case, I'm showing a restore where we had full blocks for everything. But you say, hey, Grant, I see some blue dots up there. What happens when you have to deal with one of those? So let's go look at a later backup where we have a blue dot up on that second row there. So this is where the last thing we got right before the time you want to restore is a log record. So what we do is we do an on-the-fly merge, just like we talked about in the storage node, and then we restore those. So what happens now is we've taken the restore to being a variable thing both for storage and logs. You no longer are doing you know, single-threaded log apply when you're doing restores. So this dramatically changes. Like If you're talking about restoring 32 terabytes and the changes on that, that makes a huge difference to your uh, database management. So to kind of show all this, I run this insert test. I have these nine columns. They're just, I made all kinds of different columns just to make sure it's you know, not, not kind of weird. And then I index every one of the columns. Now, that's not normal to have nine indexes on nine columns. But most people have more like 150 to 200 columns in some of their tables, and they definitely have nine indexes. In fact, I've seen people that have 60 or 100 indexes on those 150. I wouldn't recommend that, but you can do it. So let's go run an insert test on this workload. So the first thing I'm showing here is just sort of base RDS, Postgres. And vertical axis is inserts per second. And then I just run it for 300 seconds. Now, what you see is. For the first couple of minutes, we're getting 25,000 inserts per second. That's pretty good. And then it drops. Well, why does it drop? Well, as we're doing those inserts, guess what? The database is getting bigger, right? So the chance that you touch another random block since the last checkpoint becomes higher for all those indexes. Then we start ejecting full page writes into the log. This slows us down because we're doing way more work as the database gets bigger. This is bad, right? Because if you did your test of your application and you ran it for five minutes and you said to your boss, this is all great, but then you, know, you put it in production, that'd be bad, right? So in regular RDS Postgres, the thing to do is to make your checkpoints further apart. 
So what you do is you change the max wall size. And in this case, I made it 16 gig. So that works pretty well. You can see that for this test, for at least 20 minutes, it worked. And then it slowly degrades as the database gets larger, right? We still look better than the baseline, but you might not be happy with the results. So in the end, you know, we made these changes, and the, the yellow line is Aurora Postgres. And because we're not doing those full page writes, we're not doing the checkpoints, we get consistent performance, right? And we don't, as the database grows, we don't slow down. So getting back to recovery, right? I made the max wall size bigger in Postgres. Well, what does that do? Well, what it does is, as you increase the wall size between checkpoints, that means more recovery. So to show this on the vertical axis, I have recovery time. On the horizontal axis, I have how much work we're doing, i.e. how many writes per second we're pushing. So on this first little blue dot, we're doing about 18,000 transactions per second. And the recovery is pretty fast. But as we continue to push more work, the recovery time goes up to like almost a minute in the second case. And then in the end, we're doing two minutes of recovery of 30 gig of log files, right? But we're getting like 40,000 transactions per second. It's pretty good. Can anyone see where the little Aurora dot is out in, the, out in the far end there? So it's three seconds of recovery time because it's essentially just the time to start the database because we're not actually doing log recovery. And we're still producing almost three to four times the work that we could do on RDS Postgres. Now again, people ask me, so why four of six quorum? Why this design? Let's get into a little bit about synchronous replication. So your standard RDS instance, when you think about it, you have this node and you have an EBS underneath it. You do a commit, you're writing to EBS, and you get your response back to EBS, right? That all makes sense. And you should be able to acknowledge it there, right? But in reality, what's behind the case in EBS is that they have two mirrors, right? So when you write to EBS, you write to mirror one, it talks to mirror two, it comes back to mirror one, and comes back to the RDS node. And then you actually have your commit. This works well, but you can see there's a little bit of extra latency there. Now, the reason why we don't you know, recommend this is because, of course, if that instance dies, you're down. So you want to do some synchronous replication to another availability zone. So that's what we look at when we think about adding the synchronous replication. So in this case, what we're going to do is we're going to add a second node. And that's what we do for our RDS multi-Z. But we also looked at having a tertiary node and having three of them. And I'll show why we didn't. So when we do that same commit, we do these writes. And they go out. And you can see that the yellow ones, they're going to go further, right? So they're going to take longer. So you start to see the writes progressing in the EBS on the local ones sooner. And that acknowledgment is done. And we're still waiting for the two remote ones, right? And they start finishing at different times. Now, the third one finally finishes, and we have the commit being durable. But let's say that last write doesn't come back or takes a really long time. Well, you have to do what we term call fencing in synchronous replication because if that's beyond your timeout, you have to actually say, like, are these the guys that are alive? And this can take you know, many seconds to do. So it's an all or nothing thing if you have these three replicas. So in some cases, actually adding the third replica hurts your availability. You know, the durability is better, but the availability actually can go down in this setup. So, to show the latency here, I have this graph where we did a bunch of testing. The yellow is basically multi-AZ, you know, two copies in, a, you know, in four EBS sort of volumes across the availability zones. The blue is three. So you'll actually look at the latency for the 50th percentile, and it's actually not that different. But go look at the number there up on the four nines, or what I call one in, one in 10,000 IOs, right? It's 123 milliseconds versus six for a normal case. 
that's kind of brutal. So you get a lot more jitter in this system because you're going a lot further, right? So what do we do with Aurora? So we start off with our Aurora storage, our six locations, right? We notice we don't actually have the extra nodes involved because this is all happening at the storage layer. When we go to our writes, we broadcast that out to all six storage locations. So it doesn't have to go through another box or anything. It goes directly there. So again, you know, the local ones are going to come back sooner because they're local. The other ones are going to come back. But as soon as we get four, we can acknowledge the commit, right? So we have enough to know that we're durable. But, you know, if these other ones take a little longer, it's fine, right? And it's not an all or nothing. This is on every one of the writes. So even if one write doesn't make it, we don't have to stop and figure out where we are. We'll just fix that later, right? As soon as we have four. So, you know, as soon as we have, it's nice to get six because then we have to do less repair actions, but it's not necessary. So what does this all break down to in terms of latency then? So I run Sysbench here. And unlike normally where you use Sysbench to show, you know, how big of a number you can get from a transaction per second, what we're showing is the 95th percentile of the latency. So you actually want this to be lower, not higher, right? So the blue is RDS Postgres. This is single AZ. This isn't even multi-AZ. This is just single AZ. And then the yellow is Aurora, right? And what, can anyone guess what, what this is? It's a checkpoint, yeah. Because it's happening at this regular occurrence, right? And when you do a checkpoint, you're doing a lot more writing. That writing disrupts the, the flushing of the log buffer and causes these latency spikes, right? But you'll notice that there's other latency spikes that we've also removed that don't have really anything to do with the checkpointing. So let's talk a little bit about what we do differently for replicas and clones. So in Postgres, RDS Postgres, you start off with an instance and you have an EBS volume. And here I'm showing just like a tuple sitting in that configuration, right? So we take a snapshot behind the scenes, we restore that snapshot to an EBS volume, and then we add a read node to it. And of course you have to catch up because that all took a little bit of time. And for large instances, this actually can take hours. So once it's caught up, let's say we do an update. And we've changed that tuple to, you know, V2 in memory, but now we've got to write that stuff to EBS. So we do that right, now it's down in EBS. At the same time, if someone's asking for a version of that tuple over on the RO node, it hasn't been propagated yet. It has its own storage, so it's actually going to read it into memory and give you V1. That's asynchronous replication, right? Now, let's say that gets purged out of memory for some reason. Well, now we're going to do the replication. So we do that asynchronous replication, flows across. Now, the interesting thing is, with this kind of replication, not only do we have to update it in memory, but we actually have to store it in disk. And if the V1 version of that block is not in memory, we have to load it, then we do the update, and then we do the writes. So at this point, we're durable. So that's kind of just standard Postgres replication. We're not doing anything different there. But when Aurora, we wanted to, again, improve this model. So you have the same read-write node, but now you have Aurora storage showing that same tuple there. Now, when you go to ask for us for a replica or a read-only node, it's very quick because we're not building a copy of the storage. We're just attaching it to your Aurora storage. And so you can access it right away. So when we do this update, V2 in memory, that's going to get propagated down to storage. But the read node doesn't yet know about that. So if you ask for a read, we're going to give you V1. And that's why we have both versions of that block sitting in storage at that point. Now, let's say that gets flushed out again. What we do is the same asynchronous propagation of changes, but we're only doing it for memory. So in this case, you know, if V1 was there, we would 
update it to v2, if v1 is not there, we don't actually have to do any work. Now, you'll notice once we're caught up to the same, what we call LSN, you know, basically we're up to date with the primary, we can get rid of that v1 from storage, right? So we don't keep these forever, per se. I mean, they're backed up to S3, but we don't have to keep them in the current storage. So what does this look like in a practical, you know, thing? A lot of people probably run PG Bench. They're familiar with that, that tool. So if you run it read-write, you touch these four tables, right? So the accounts, tellers, branches, history. So they'll all get touched on your read-write node. If you run read-only, it only does reads against the accounts table. So here I'm showing Postgres. You, you start running that. That's all good. But when you do the asynchronous replication and apply, it's going to have to load all the other tables just to save the changes, right? On Aurora, we don't have to do that. Remember, we're doing this asynchronous replication, so the only table we're going to be updating is the accounts table, because it's the only one that has data loaded. So again, this makes for a lot less work on your read-only nodes. One of my favorite features that we did is called fast clones. And so this really is a fun storage-based feature that we added in the last couple of years. So let's say someone comes along and says, I have a reporting application but I need to build new indexes and some summary tables. Well, normally you do a restore from a backup and allow them, but if they want to do that on a daily basis, that's going to be really painful, right? So now what you can do is you can ask us for what we call a fast clone. So when you get that, you get this read-write node, again, EC2 node, and you get clone storage. Now, clone storage is exactly the same as regular Aurora storage, except for instead of being pre-filled with copies of the block, it's just pointers to your current storage. Well, that sounds okay, but where do we go from there, right? If once you get your read-write node running in your application, if you do a read, it looks like you're going to read from the clone, right? But in fact, you're actually getting redirected to read from the original storage because that's fine. You don't have to have a copy. Now, when you go make a change, this is where things start separating, right? So we're going to write to the clone, which means we're going to do copy on write. So we're going to make a copy, we're going to make a change to that, and we're going to store that in the clone, and we're going to disconnect that link because we don't want the original uh, read-write node to see those changes. And if we write more changes, um, that's fine too, right? Those just happen. Now, if the original primary does a write that's new, it just goes into its storage, right? So you're not, it's not like a replica. It's not following. They're completely distinct things. And when you do a write to a current block, we'll actually copy the old version down to the clone storage and then disconnect that link, right? So it's all using copy on write technology that allows us to get you know, this thing where even if you have a 60 terabyte database, you're going to be paying pennies for your storage. Now, one of the first questions people said to me was, this all sounds great, Grant, but there's got to be a catch, right? Like performance probably is impacted or I can't do stuff with it right away. It's not the case. So here I'm running a benchmark where I've set PG Bench to run at 20,000 transactions per second doing writes. And that's the blue line. And then 18 minutes in, or I guess 20-some minutes in, I, I run a clone command. And so it takes about 18 minutes for this large database to get cloned. And as soon as it got cloned, I had my script sitting there waiting. And as soon as it did, I started the same benchmark on it. And what you'll notice is there's no dip on the blue line when we did the clone. And there's no dip on the blue line or the yellow line when we start running now two workloads. And the reason for that is, remember all those storage nodes I showed? 
you're split up across possibly thousands of storage nodes where we're balancing the heat behind the scenes. So even though you're doing more work with your storage, you don't notice, right? One of the questions I had this week was folks talking about provisioned I.O. and, and that kind of uh, problem. You don't have to think about that with Aurora because of the storage model. On replication, we've made some uh, great changes in the last year. Uh, the first being we added support for logical replication. So this is where you're basically converting the physical wall stream that Postgres produces into, you know, select statements and update statements, and you can you can see everything that goes on, right? So um, to do this, you can essentially fire up an EC2 instance is one way, and you can turn on logical decoding. And this was the first kind of version that. Uh, Postgres supported, and we support the three decoders today, and it will pull changes, basically EC2 instance would pull changes from your Postgres instance and then allow you to you know, send those off to places like Kinesis. Well, that's a lot of wiring to do for yourself, so we have a service called uh, DMS, or Data uh, Migration Service, which is really a replication service. It allows you to do the exact same work, um, and then it can go to things like RDS, S3, uh, uh, Dynamo or you know something like Redshift. It has they're constantly adding destinations. So this is a nice way if you need to do this, you can flow data out of your uh, database to other properties that you own. Now with uh, version 10, Postgres added a lot of nice features that and one of them was the ability to do direct publish and subscribe between Postgres instances. So you no longer need another instance. So in this case, I'm showing like an EC2 Postgres instance where you essentially tell I want to publish to that, and that's all you have to do. You don't need another machine or anything. Um, this could be an RDS Postgres instance or an Aurora Postgres instance. So it's any kind of thing that supports Postgres in 10, of, 10 or above. So that's a really nice way to move data now. The other one that I was talking about that we're going to be releasing shortly is what we call global database, or sometimes referred to as cross-region replication in the RDS world. So I'm showing my same kind of setup in my first region. And what I'm going to be able to do is I can say, online, I can say, add this region to my global setup. So once I do that, I can then say, I would like to add another region as a destination, which is region B here. And what we're going to do is we're going to make a copy of your storage. And you can have read-only nodes. Now, the thing you notice that we added here in the gray is we have a replication and a replication, a replication server and agent. So, when you do that same update on your read-write node, sort of showing in that green arrow, what's going to happen is that update flows again to the RO nodes, it flows to the local storage, but it flows to this thing called the replication server. And its job is to push that across to the replication agent on the other region. From there, it goes to storage, and it goes to the read-only nodes. Um, now, the cool thing about this is this is storage-to-storage-based replication. So you can have many RO nodes, right? You can have your, your system set up exactly the same if you want in your destination. And as I said, we have all these repair functions, right? So even if a, if a log record got missed for some reason, we can just ask the storage node and the, it'll flow through to the, to the storage node on the other side. So this allows you, in the case of, let's say, a region going down or you wanting to move from one region to the other, to simply promote the other region. And now it looks exactly the same. So if you have really stringent RTO you know, recovery time, uh, you can have your system set up exactly the same so you don't have to do anything except for the promote command and you're ready to go. Now, one of the other things that we just introduced with Global Database for across the Aurora line was the ability to have multiple destinations. So here I'm showing the exact same setup, but now I'm going to add region C. 
And you notice region C doesn't need to be set up the exact same way. We don't have to have the same number of RO nodes. And in actuality, the cool thing about this feature is in region D, I don't actually have any RO nodes. I've just got the storage. So this is a much more inexpensive way to have durable storage in another region if you need that for your uh, application. So we've also made some changes to caching. So one of the things that Postgres does is it uses the Linux page cache. We don't have one of those, so we had to make some changes. So here I'm showing one of our larger instances with 488 gig of RAM. I think this was the R416. And when we think about how we split up memory in RDS, we basically allocate about 25% of the memory for the Postgres processes and the OS. And then about another 25% for shared buffers, and the rest was the Linux page cache. So when we go do a select, we you know, essentially look for the block in the shared buffers. If it's not there, we go to read from disk. But really what that does is really goes to the Linux page cache first, and then goes to EBS if it doesn't find it there, and then you get the return all the way back. So this works really nicely. But you'll notice that because the shared buffers and the Linux page cache can possibly have the same information, you might be losing 25% of your RAM to this duplication of buffers. So that's not great. So on the Aurora side, we basically allocate the same amount of memory for Postgres and OS, but the rest of it goes to shared buffers because we don't have a Linux page cache, right? So as you can see, then we have no double buffering, right? This is nice for both performance and utilization. When we do a read, same thing. We go look at the shared buffers. If it's not there, we go to Aurora storage and we come back. So one of the nice things about Postgres is when one of the Postgres processes dies, the shared buffers go away. On a lot of databases, this would be really painful because you'd be like, I have a cold cache. But because they use the Linux page cache, we're actually happy because it's there in your Linux page cache, right? OK, well, we don't have a Linux page cache. What are we going to do, right? So when the processes die, we do something different. We still want to be happy. So we built this thing called survivable cache. So what this does is it goes and throws away all the things in cache that shouldn't be there that are temporary, and we just keep the data blocks. So this means you get the exact same behavior, but you don't actually have to have that duplication. The other thing folks talked to us about was, again, cold start on failover. So what I'm showing here is I'm running this benchmark, and it's a fairly read-only heavy benchmark. It's about 20 to 1 read-only to read-write. And running this along, and it, it's 160 gig cache, so it's a big database. And at 600 seconds, I basically you know, cause it to fail over. This takes 32 seconds in this example with DNS propagation for my thing to be able to reconnect. And I'm only trying once a second, so it could be a little less than this. But when you look at this benchmark, right, that little white line there is kind of the bottom of what we'd expect to see from performance, right? Well, how long does it take us to get back to that point? It took 340 seconds, so more than 10 times as long. So you know, if you're talking to you know, the people running the application, they're like, they're not going to be happy you know, because really they, had, they didn't have a half-minute outage, they had a multi-minute outage, right? So we built a feature to help solve that problem. So going back to that same diagram of my uh, Aurora storage and read-only and read-and-write nodes. So we allow you to designate for your read-only nodes what failover tier they're in. So you can say which ones you want to go to. So if you have different size instances, you can control that. If you have failover priority zero and you've enabled uh, what we call APG CCM enabled, I know, lovely name for it. Uh, you turn that on, and you have this failover priority zero. We will start shipping 
a Bloom filter uh, model of the replication cache that's in the RO node. So it basically says, here's what I have. The read-write node says, well, here's what I have, and so here's what you need to load. So in the background, asynchronously, so it doesn't block the replication channel, we slowly load this stuff, and we typically get to about 80 to 90% matching you know, of memory. So why do you care, right? Well, let's go run that same benchmark. And the difference you see here is in the blue, where I'm doing that exact same failover, right, at 600 seconds. But notice that it's 32 seconds still for the failover, but it's also 32 seconds to get above that white line, right? So you no longer have this really slow, you know, loading stuff in a cache. So again, if you have a real highly available, you know, can't handle downtime, this is a really nice feature. So what else have we done? Well, we've been working on performance. How many people use our performance insights tool? Any? Okay, good. More of you should. It's great. It's getting better all the time, too. So I'm running performance insights. I'm running this benchmark. Things are looking good. Got that nice little yellow bit. And then all of a sudden, down here at the end, something went horribly wrong, right? I'm now the blue, or sorry, the green there is CPU. I'm using all my CPUs. I'm totally maxed out on the box, right? Something's went horribly wrong. This tool can show you this. So we'll drill in. We're like, wow, yeah, that's been happening. We see this statement. Well, okay. It's kind of a reporting statement, but huh, was it doing the same problem before? So we'll go look back in time, and we see, no, nope, it wasn't, right? It was something else. So we'll go look at plans, and today you can't do this in Performance Insights, but it's one of the things that customers have requested a lot, and so guess what? Teams, you know, busy kind of working on that. So before we were doing things like nested loop, index scans, bitmap scans, afterwards we're doing things like hash join sequential scans way more expensive, right? So now we know why. Even though everything was in cache, we were burning a lot of CPU. So these could occur from stats changes regularly, config changes, change some indexes. Many things can cause these kind of performance changes, right? Well, in this case, it was me being, you know, having fun with the database and turning off two of the features that Postgres uses to be, you know, faster, right? So, you know, just obviously a test. But to fix these problems, our customers said, look, it's not enough just to improve the performance of Aurora. We want predictable performance. So we built this thing called QPM, or Query Plan Management. And what it allows you to do, it allows you to capture your statements. So I'm showing two statements here, query A, query B, version one of both of them. Now, what you get to do is you get to approve that version of the plan, and then you sort of lock that in and you say, I want you to use those. So from now on, once you say use baselines, it will only use that version of the plan. Now, this is both good and bad, right? Because let's say someone adds an index, and maybe you get new versions of the plan that could be better, but we're not using them, right? We just see them. But you, with this tool, you can also do compares, and you can evolve to better plans. So in this case, let's compare you know, V3 of this plan to V1. Well, it turns out it's way cheaper. So what we do is we promote that and say, that's the new plan, use it, and that's what I did here and you can see the dramatic difference, right? It goes back to what we wanted, so that plan was better, right? Um, this really allows you to have much more predictable performance, even if stats change and everything else. One of the other areas that we worked on was around prefetch. Um, again, with standard Postgres, they use the file system cache, and therefore can get prefetch through it, and they use the fadvise to do that. So here I'm just talking about you know, you just see a he bunch of heat blocks, right? Normally, if you go do a bunch of reads, and if you were doing them just 
you know, sequentially with no prefetch, it's gonna take a long time, right? Because you have to wait for each one of those responses. What you really want to have happen in that basic prefetch case is after you see a number of these, let's say four in this case, you'd be like, oh, let's go do in prefetch. Now I'm only showing, you know, prefetching a little bit of blocks, but typically you fetch a lot more, right? So this would be a lot faster. And I call this sort of basic prefetch. So Postgres has had this. We added this fairly early on with Aurora. You know, it was just one of those things you had to have for performance, right? Now, the next thing, of course, is indexes, because sometimes you scan indexes. And in this case, I'm showing an index-only range scan. So this means I'm not gonna touch the heap, I'm just scanning the index, right? So, and the index I'm showing here, um, hopefully you can see kind of the, the, um, the numbers a bit, is it's sort of laid out in an order that is very similar both logically and physically. And this happens if you basically, if you create a new index, like, you know, rebuild one, or you're inserting on a right-leaning index. So when you do this, if we're going down and doing a range scan, we, you know, we start over on this far left side, for example, and what we notice is all these blocks belong together. And for those that can't see the numbers, it's 33 through 40, right? So this looks physically like we can go do, you know, a prefetch. So this works well in standard Postgres, and we built capabilities to handle this basic prefetch case as well. Now, same thing is true if you have an index range scan. So this is where you're scanning through the index, but now you're picking up the heat blocks. So we do the exact same thing, but now we're sending a whole bunch of writes or reads down to the heap, right? Now, again, this is really nice that our index happens to point very tightly to a very small number of heat blocks. So we'll notice we can do a prefetch on the index and a prefetch on the heap. So this works well in standard Postgres, works stand well in Aurora Postgres. But let's talk about a more complex case. Let's talk about a case where you have an index where it's inserted completely out of order. So let's say you had a GUID. You would end up with an index where, from a physical perspective, it starts filling in like this, right? So as you do the range scan, you're gonna be following down the tree, and you're gonna get to that node, like let's say it's still 33. And you go to the next block, and you find out it's, you know, 900. Well, that doesn't really look like you could prefetch it, right? So, you know, this is not gonna work, and it doesn't work very well in standard Postgres. What we do is a little different. So we back up to, let's say, that block eight. We look in block eight at what addresses we're gonna need to read, and we just go create a batch, and we send those down. So it doesn't matter if they're physically located together. And this is what I mean by intelligent prefetch. So we do this both, you know, we can continue to do this with more batches as we walk the index, right? So that works really well. We see typically about 2x performance improvements at least against standard Postgres. Again, our standard uh, index again that's kind of out of order. And now we have a heap that we're gonna do with an index range scan. So we do this, go down, and guess what? That first index block points to a very small number of heap blocks, right? So we think, hey, maybe we can do prefetch, right? But when we go to that second index block, it points all over the place in the, in the heap, right? It points out to block 4,000. So we're like, that's not gonna work, right? And it doesn't in standard Postgres. So let's go back. We're gonna do those same batches that I showed before to get the index, but now as we traverse the leaf nodes of the index, we're also gonna build batches to go do the heap, right? And again, these don't have to be in order. We can do them completely anywhere they are in the heap. This adds a lot of performance. We did another change to to the doing intelligent vacuum prefetch as well. So here I'm showing what I call a frozen map, which is one of the two maps that Postgres has around vacuuming. And the blue blocks are the ones that are already frozen, and the red ones are the ones that we need to freeze, right, when we do our vacuum. So 
typically what you'd want to do is just read those single blocks. But Postgres, because it's trying to do um, read ahead, will actually end up doing reads like this. Because if two blocks are within 32 of each other, then we try to prefetch them in, right? This isn't horrible because you are getting some sequential kind of nature, but you're putting a lot more pressure on your uh, machine. So this took 402 seconds on Postgres. For Aurora, what we do is we gather those block addresses, much like I showed before, and we gather this up into a block of up to 256. All of our prefetch can do up to 256 blocks, and then we submit that. And this is much faster. So we, say, we see times like 163 seconds, so more than two times faster to do this vacuum on Aurora. Um, we also have some really cool technology we've been building to try to make just working with databases easier. One of them is our Aurora serverless option. So really what this is, is it's an ability to stand up quickly an Aurora cluster, and when you do that, you get your Aurora storage like you always do, but until you start working with it, you're not paying for an instance, right? So once you fire your application up, then, and you start doing work, we'll actually bring an instance in from the hot pool, and you can start using it. And if you start using it more, we'll give you a bigger instance, right? And we'll scale that up, and all the way up to our biggest instance size today. Now, if you stop using it, again, we'll scale it down or we'll stop, right? So if your application stops for a while in the middle of the night, or if this is dev test, you can also, you know, the instance will go down to nothing. So this is, you know, a per minute kind of, I guess it's, you know, pay by the second with a one minute minimum. So it's really nice. We also just added a data API to this. So you don't actually even have to talk through a normal client anymore. You can do HTTP requests to this if you're using, you know, kind of Lambda functions. So just to show this, I have a graph of a benchmark where we're running, and the, this is from CloudWatch. You can see the uh, orange line is basically the CPU, and the blue is how much we're scaled up to on our serverless. So as the CPU is high, we're going to essentially scale up, and we'll keep scaling up until the CPU quits going up, right? And once I stop that benchmark, of course, what happens is the CPU went down, and we scaled down. And the good thing is we give you control so you don't have to necessarily have it scale all the way down. You could leave it a little higher if you wanted, or you, know, you can cap how big it's going to be. Now, of course, one of the things people say, well, it's nice that you have this Aurora thing, but how do I get into it? Um, you know, there's four basic ways. I mean, there's lots of others, but these are the basic ones. Uh, if you're just in Postgres somewhere in the world, you can obviously use pgdump, pgrestore. Um, as I said before, we have this great database migration service, DMS. There was lots of great talks this week on that, and I'm sure nice recorded sessions. This is a logical way to get in if you're 9.4 or above. But if you're in RDS, we started with a model that you could come in via snapshot. And this worked well for kind of dev test, but the outage time was too long. So we built this thing called read replicas. So let's talk about how that works. So here we have our service talking to uh, an Amazon RDS Postgres instance, right? Standard setup. And what you do is you create a new cluster, but you're really creating a read replica. So you say, create DB cluster, but now you say, point it at my RDS Postgres instance. So we take a snapshot, we do the translation that we need to do, and then we fire up an Aurora cluster for you. And at that point, you know, this is all connected. And we're replicating via the Postgres asynchronous replication protocol to catch up and to be up to date. So once that's all kind of done and you're good, what you can do is you can stop your service, you can basically promote that Aurora cluster, and you can hook up your service to it. And that's it, you're done. So we've seen people do this in a number of minutes or less, right? 
And at that point, you can stop your RDS instance, and you're all good, and you're on Aurora. And then, you know, you're happy, right? Uh, I wanted to mention we, uh, we have a whole bunch of new training that the team has been building um, across a lot of our different database properties. Uh, you know, please go visit the AWS training if you're interested in that. Uh, a lot of great, uh, great stuff that we're working there to try to improve, you know, the education around our services. Uh, with that, thank you very much for coming. Uh, I'll remind you to fill out your session surveys, and I'll be happy to take questions.